The Hamden County Sheriff's Office is more than law enforcement. We provide professional medical and mental health care during and post-incarceration, valuing wellness, treatment, and access to care. We offer part and full-time nursing positions with a less hectic pace, state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. We walk with empathy, uplifting individuals and families. Join us. Make a difference. Visit our website for more. The Hamden County Sheriff's Office, not your average law enforcement agency. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. See what others do not see. Do what others will not do. Ask what others are afraid to ask. Give more than others are willing to give. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share narratives of people and programs both inside and outside of the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, the stigmas that surround those who have been impacted by the justice system, and the inspiring stories of those who are hustling to prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. We have a full house of who I consider to be very powerful women in the state of Massachusetts that are each in their own silo, but yet all working together towards a very important program for medical parole. And that sort of fits in with everything that we talk about here at The Hustler Files. My first introduction is to Representative Mindy Dom. Mindy is the representative for the state of Massachusetts House from the third Hampshire district. Third Hampshire yep. district. Great, because there's so many districts and I can't keep them all straight. But Mindy, welcome to the Hustler Files. Thank you so much and thank you for being interested in medical parole. Well, it's definitely a subject that's been getting a lot of press. And you're working very closely with an organization called PLS, which is the Prisoners Legal Services. Mm -hmm. And we happen to have with us on the phone today, Cheryl Zoll, who is the interim executive director. And Cheryl has been a champion of the underdogs throughout, I think, her most of her career and has um, recently served as the CEO of Tapestry Health, which is a whole nother conversation we could have on this show. And Cheryl, welcome to The Hustler Files. Thank you. And you've brought with you, why don't you introduce us to Ada Lynn? Yeah, Ada is one of PLS's very talented attorneys, and she's done extensive work on our medical parole project, and more broadly has thrown herself into a number of policy issues that have a direct impact on um, the rights of people who are incarcerated. And she approaches it both with a legal background and a passion for the issue that we find inspiring. And it is a very inspiring and a very necessary conversation. Mindy, I'm going to come back to you. You have filed a House bill about medical parole. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Sure. Um, I filed the bill in the Massachusetts House of Representatives, and Senator Pat Jalen from Somerville has filed it in the Senate. And that often happens. We'll We'll try to file identical bills in both houses so that 
they can move together and get more support from legislators in both houses. Um, and this bill was brought to my attention by PLS. So when I first got elected, I met with PLS just to talk about what their work was, what my interests were, and some of my background working in jails and around public health issues. And they raised the issue to me, well, are you aware about medical parole? And I wasn't all that aware. In 2018, the legislature passed the program, but I wasn't aware that there was monitoring going on and that it was not, that we were actually identifying challenges and barriers to medical parole implementation that could be corrected, but weren't being corrected and needed legislation in order to correct that. So I think I'm very indebted to PLS and to the lawyers there who not only were champions for this program, but who have been closely monitoring it and also identifying ways we can make it better and ways we can make sure it gets implemented to the extent that the legislature wanted to when we passed it. And sometimes that happens, right? We pass laws to create programs. The implementation of those programs sometimes hits roadblocks or speed bumps, and then the legislature can go in with the administration, hopefully, and kind of refine it, to, you know, kind of modify it, make it work better, make sure that what we're learning about, that our barriers are removed. And with medical parole, it's really been because of PLS's monitoring and seeing how this I would say how it gets implemented, but it's really about how it's not getting implemented. That requires more legislative action. And so I'm very honored to be part of that effort. So I understand it and my listeners will understand it. The bill has not been passed into law. It's still it, in that process. Yes, we've introduced this for several sessions. So we, it, you know, the legislature is a two-year session and every bill gets a public hearing. So we've reintroduced this bill and actually with PLS's significant work, we've been able to make it more relevant to 2023. So the bill that we introduced the last session has even been changed to this session to include current obstacles and current understanding of barriers to implementation. Every bill that gets filed in the Massachusetts legislature gets a public hearing and in that session. And then committees get to decide what advances and what doesn't advance. And we're waiting to get this bill scheduled for a public hearing, which I anticipate will happen. It will have to happen this month or next month. So before we switch over to Cheryl and Ada to talk more about PLS, the bill itself, from what I took from it, is that this is a measure of public decency toward incarcerated people who are terminally ill or permanently incapacitated while ensuring public safety. Are we talking about, and this is for Representative Dom, are we talking about hundreds and thousands of people or are we talking about a handful of people? I don't think we're talking about thousands, although Ada might be able to give us a sense of what the projected number are. But we are talking about, you know, like in this case, because it's people who are terminally ill or, you know, permanently incapacitated, it really is every single person counts here, right? And timing is important because if someone is facing a terminal illness, we don't want the process to be so long that they die in prison and then get, you know, posthumously, yes, they would have qualified. And that has happened. It's also happened that people have been granted medical parole, but the process of releasing them hasn't happened fast enough. So they've still died in prison. That's just wrong, right? That right. contradicts the whole point of medical parole. So that that's the situation that we need to correct. And we know that, you know, the prison population is aging and that's going to include more people who potentially have cognitive impairments. We need to make sure that we're on top of the ability to screen and diagnose those individuals and make sure that if they're eligible, 
that they are in fact assessed for medical parole. There's two parts of medical parole. There's the medical assessment, and then there's like the safety assessment, right? Because it's a parole program, it's also about does this person currently create a risk to their community? And one of the pieces of this bill that I think is really important is to keep those two assessments done by the people who have expertise in each of those areas so that the threat to safety isn't also considering the medical risk. A medical provider should be assessing that. And then together, they form a portrait of the person and maybe illustrate their eligibility. And I can understand why it's important we talk about this, even other subjects that have come up around jail, release, prison, especially in the sex offender category. It, it can be very sticky. It's, it's a tough situation. So let's jump over to PLS. Cheryl, do you want to give us a little bit of detail on what PLS does? Because I've been on your website and it's a beautiful website. It's easy to read, but you really cover a lot of ground. Yeah. So PLS was founded in 1972 in the wake of the Attica riots. Its mission has always been to provide legal support for people who are incarcerated. It's grown over the years and it has five priority areas. One is medical and um, mental health care access. And this is directly related to our work on the medical parole issues. We work on staff assault, general conditions in prison, do people have access to canteen, things like that, solitary confinement, and racial equity. And I do want to say that PLS is an anti-racist organization that really recognizes racial inequities in the carceral system, and that recognition also informs a lot of our work and a lot of our priorities. And then we have a number of approaches one is individual advocacy. Again, this is something that comes up in medical parole, where if there's somebody who is entitled to it and being denied, they may call PLS, and that's something that we can try to help them with. We also try to do impact lit litigation. So PLS doesn't do a lot of individual litigation, but is really interested in systemic change. And so the litigation that PLS tends to take up are those things where the result of the litigation will make a difference for many people who are incarcerated in the system. And then finally, we have a lot of folks who are working on policy. And again, this medical parole bill is a good example of that, where again, it gives us an opportunity to shine some light on the system, create some transparency, and then make positive changes that will really make sure that people who are incarcerated have the right to live with dignity it is such an admirable path that PLS walks. I was reading online that the typical prisoner-to-lawyer ratio is over 3,000 to 1. Well, PLS can't do everything. <laughs> that's, that's one of the reasons why it's always been important to PLS, that we try to leverage the incredible skills and passion of staff to tackle things that are really going to have a systemic impact, which isn't to say that there isn't also some work that happens with individuals, but in everything that PLS does, we're really thinking like, what can we do to address some of the punitive excesses of the carceral system in Massachusetts? And you're only based in Massachusetts, correct? That's right, yeah. Are there other agencies, organizations like yourself in other states that just go under different names? There are, and PLS has any connection with those. They're, they're very loose. There's no formal connection. Well, the work you're doing is amazing, and we're going to have to take a quick break, and when we come back, 
Ada, prepare yourself because you are the the key to unlock all these questions of everything that Mindy and Cheryl have just been chatting about. So listeners, get another cup of coffee. You're going to need it. We'll be back in a minute with more of The Hustler Files. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust a state child abuse prevention agency for our work with the Nurturing Fathers program. Because of our work, Hampshire County has many more fathers with a deeper understanding of the important role they play in the lives of their children and their families. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, Visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, or submit an application online, or call 413-584-5911 and ask for our HR department. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. We have quite a group with us this week talking about a very serious subject, medical parole. And here in Massachusetts, it is something that is so important that it is on the legislative table. There's a House bill and a Senate bill pending to offer the decency of medical parole to incarcerated people who are terminally ill or permanently incapacitated. We've been chatting with Representative Mindy Dom, and we've been chatting with Interim Executive Director Cheryl Zoll from Prisoners Legal Services, and I'm very excited that you're both here, and and you've set the table in the first segment of the show, because now I want to dig in with Ada Lynn, and uh, Ada is a staff attorney and policymaker with PLS, Prisoners Legal Services. So, Ada, welcome to The Hustler Files. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So why don't you give us and our listeners a little background on yourself? Sure. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for the intro. So I um, am a staff attorney at Prisoners Legal Services, and I'm part of the Medical Parole Project here. And as part of that, there are actually about a half dozen attorneys and paralegals who serve on that team under the leadership of attorney Lauren Pettit and paralegal Kate Piper. And we bring medical parole petitions and appeals, and we also engage in policymaking around medical parole. It's been really great to work with um, a team of really great advocates at PLS. And, you know, before I began any conversation about medical parole, I always say to people that, you know, when we speak about medical parole, we are doing our best to speak on behalf of people who are directly impacted. But that includes people who have died before they were able to be released on medical parole, um, including some of my own clients. And so it's unfortunate that a lot of the people who are eligible for medical parole and their loved ones are often not in a position, you know, to be speaking out about these issues because they're grieving or because they don't have access to the media or legislators. And so at PLS, we feel like it's our responsibility to make it known that, you know, we're speaking on behalf of those individuals. So yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. So Ada, why don't you give us some background on the medical parole program itself? 
Yeah, sure. So um, in 2018, the Massachusetts legislature, as Representative Dom mentioned, passed the Criminal Justice Reform Act, which we call the CDRA, which required um, in part the release of people who are either terminally ill, um, which is defined as having likely 18 months or less to live, or permanently incapacitated prisoners who don't pose a risk to public safety. Um, And this is all part of the medical parole statute. These individuals are often the most elderly and frail members of the prison population. These are folks in wheelchairs who are bedbound, who may no longer have even use of their hands or their limbs. Um, Many have dementia or other forms of age-related cognitive impairment. And the goal of medical parole is to facilitate their release to either a skilled nursing facility in the community or to a family member or other loved one who's able to care for them in their home. And the whole idea behind this reform is that incarcerated people who are dying or permanently incapacitated should not be denied decency and compassion at the end of their lives. And that dying behind bars is incredibly inhumane in many ways and is also a waste of taxpayer resources. I wanted to flag that a real reason why we're thinking and talking a lot about medical parole, especially right now, is that across the nation, we're facing a real crisis around aging in prison. So the U.S. Census Bureau has estimated that by 2030, a third of the state and federal prison population is going to be over the age of 50. And 50 is considered the benchmark here because individuals in custody age physiologically faster, about 10 to 15 years faster than those outside of prison, which is incredibly alarming. In Massachusetts specifically, um, the percentage of people aged 60 or over in the state system has increased from 10% in 2018 to 15% in 2023. So we're facing a situation in which there's more and more need for nursing level care in the DOC. There is a need for providers who are experienced with incarcerated people who are aging, um, and that doesn't really currently exist. So we're seeing more resources put in the DOC towards caring for all of these elders um, in a way that, you know, in some ways resembles what would happen at a nursing home, but behind bars. And a lot of our state uh, prisons um, in Massachusetts are not really equipped physically to do this. Um, you know, these are physical structures that, you know, were never built, built to accommodate people with physical disabilities or cognitive disabilities. And also it's enormously expensive. Um, so in fiscal year 2021, it costs on average about $436,000 per year to incarcerate somebody in the correctional unit of Lemuel Shattuck Hospital, where a lot of people who are eligible for medical parole end up living out the end of their lives. It's a place where a lot of people are getting chemotherapy um, and sort of end-of-life care. In contrast, it costs the state via Mass Health, um, Mass Health up to about $70,000 per person per year to stay in a skilled nursing facility. So the disparity in how much taxpayers are paying uh, for people um, in this position is, is really stark. The numbers are staggering. And listening to you speak, it just is such an emotional conversation because you're dealing with this on a daily basis. And we talk about this once a week here on the show in in a variety of formats. How did you get involved in this piece of the legal services industry? Yeah, it's a great question. So years ago, I I worked as a paralegal at the ACLU's National Prison Project, and we didn't bring medical parole cases there at the time, but we did, you know, bring class action cases across the country um, related to issues including inadequate mental health care, medical care, excessive use of force, and other issues. And so I became really familiar with these issues there, um, and also worked on a case out in Arizona um, that was a statewide class action lawsuit regarding failure to provide medical care um, and use of solitary confinement. And I 
sort of saw firsthand how a lot of our clients who were placed in solitary confinement, either because they had developed age-related cognitive disabilities and had behavioral symptoms that went untreated, they, they often ended up in solitary confinement where their conditions were exacerbated. And it was really difficult to see, you know, how people who are aging are treated in the DOCs um, across the country. Um, and it makes me, you know, I've also got elderly grandparents who are being cared for by my parents and my in-laws' parents. And, you know, regardless of, of, of who we are and what we believe, we all have a desire for, you know, a humane and compassionate death. And I think we all think about that when it comes to thinking about the elders in our lives. For people in the DOC, you know, it's especially for those serving longer sentences, which is usually the case for our clients who, who are facing medical parole eligibility, there's, there's often nobody left uh, to care for them. And so they're totally alone. For a lot of my clients, I may be the last person they see before they die. And so there's also sort of this really important role that we play as attorneys where it's not just the legal advocacy that we provide, but also we, we sort of are in some ways shepherds uh, for people towards end of life. Um, and so I think because of my own experiences and because of, you know, my interest in, in medical issues, um, I, I've really wanted to work on this for a long time and PLS gave me that opportunity. I, I also wanted to illustrate maybe for listeners, what it's like to die in a correctional setting, because I think that that's not something that is ever made visible through the media. Yeah, I would love to do that. We're just almost out of time. That's always the problem I run into with the show. And maybe we save that and I have you come back in a few weeks and we could do something with the second part of this, because this is a much larger topic. It's very emotional and it's very heartfelt. And, and I think you're, you know, sort of an angel of mercy, it seems like, with a lot of these people that you're touching before they, they pass on. Okay, Mindy and Cheryl and Ada, it happens every week. We run out of time, um, but that always gives us the opportunity to start the next conversation. So I do have one more question for each of you, and if you could keep it um, to maybe 30 seconds, that would be great. I ask all of my guests the same question, which is, I'm a believer we all have life assignments. I believe there's something that drives us towards our passions um, that we're supposed to do to maybe help others. I know all three of you are, are working tirelessly to do that within your own silos and work worlds. But Sometimes it's more personal than it is uh, work-driven. So, Mindy, I'm going to start with you. What do you think maybe your life assignment is? Really? We have to start with me? <laughs> oh That's a 30-second question. Really, 30 seconds. Um, I guess my life assignment in 30 seconds would be to collaborate and partner with people who devote their hearts and their minds to supporting our world and people who don't have that support, people like Ada and Cheryl and other people at PLS. And maybe my life's work is just making sure I find those people and connect my uh, cab my caboose onto them. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. That's a wonderful assignment. And you gave me goosebumps, which I always <laughs> say is a good thing. Cheryl, over to you. What do you think your life assignment right now is? I wish I had gone first. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar. I, I do feel like I'm driven by a desire to really support work that makes the world a better place. And it's always been just an incredible privilege to be able to bring some of those back end needs to organizations so that people like 
Ada and all of the staff at PLS are able to just devote their whole selves to doing just that, to improving the lot of individuals, but also creating a society that is is just and fair and equitable for everybody. And that is a wonderful life assignment. And I have a feeling you've probably touched a lot of people over your career and probably have quite a few more, you and Mindy both. And Ada, I think your life assignment is really special, but I'll let you tell us what you think. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've figured it out totally, you know, hopefully <laughs> hopefully when I grow up, right? But uh, I think, um, you know, my life assignment at least for for now, is, um, you know, making sure that people who don't have access to sort of traditional forms of decision-making and power are able to have access um, so that they can make decisions about their own lives. And that applies to people in custody right now, right, that they can eventually have access to legislative processes and um, everything else that we do to advocate for ourselves because, you know, they are community members just like we are. Um, And, um, you know, I think that's a uh, seems like it's a doable goal for at least the next five years. So, Well, you keep going because I have a feeling you have a very large future in front of you. Ladies, thank you all for joining me today. Um, Cheryl, Mindy, Ada, uh, the work you do is so invaluable and so needed, and we need to keep having these conversations. And listeners, don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a minute to wrap up this week with The Hustler Files. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. We are back, and this week's thoughts come from Jacqueline Whitney, Beyond Worthy. You're allowed to have off days. You're allowed to feel completely drained from all that is going on in your life and has been for a while. You're allowed to take a break from responsibilities to take care of yourself. You're allowed to express your feelings how you need to. You should not feel guilty for not feeling like or acting like yourself It is in these times you discover yourself, your strength, you discover meaning and resiliency, and all you need to live a good life. You will look back on these times and be proud of the person you fought for. You will be proud of you. And that's a wrap on another Hustler Files for this week. I want to thank our wonderful guests today, Mindy and Cheryl and Ada. I want to thank all of our sponsors and our other guests that come to us each week and share their stories. You can find all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page or on any of your favorite podcast sites. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. The Hamden County Sheriff's Office is more than law enforcement. We provide professional medical and mental health care during and post-incarceration, valuing wellness, treatment, and access to care. 
We offer part and full-time nursing positions with a less hectic pace, state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. We walk with empathy, uplifting individuals and families. Join us. Make a difference. Visit our website for more. The Hamden County Sheriff's Office, not your average law enforcement agency.